Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constant from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as the principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health, diabetes outcomes, and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. The opinions and recommendations in this podcast are those of the presenters and not those of Cardio and its sponsors, and are not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. I'm Chris Bernheisel. I'm an associate professor in family medicine at the University of Cincinnati. I'm a family physician and a member of Cardio's Team Best Practices. In this podcast, we'll be talking about patient barriers to insulin initiation and administration, how to overcome these barriers. We'll also describe ways to educate on insulin initiation in the primary care office and how to avoid common pitfalls when ordering diabetes and insulin supplies. Today, we have two outstanding individuals, Karen Bailey and Sarah Aldrich-Renner. Karen is a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified diabetes care and education specialist based at Ohio University's Diabetes Institute. Sarah is a clinical assistant professor at the University of Toledo and practices as a clinical ambulatory care pharmacist. I'm so grateful to have you both with me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Glad to be here. One of the things I encounter that can be such a challenge is those barriers for insulin, for starting insulin. And there's so many different barriers that we encounter. One of the things I would love to hear from you all is, what's going on in my patient's brain when the first time I mention we're going to have to start insulin? And it could be because the patient's been on treatment for quite a while and their A1C still isn't under control. But for some reason, we're at the point where I need to start some insulin. And I can always tell by their nonverbal cues, their eyes opening and their face sort of dropping. I would love if you guys could share what's going on in their brain. What are those barriers that they're thinking about? Well, there sure are many barriers to insulin initiation. I'm certain we all could share a few examples of these. For one, insulin is seen by some folks as a personal failure. They believe that they need to start insulin because they failed to manage their diabetes successfully. And that's unfortunate, but it's common. There's also, of course, that fear of needles, the fear of the painful injections if they haven't used insulin before and experienced that. Many times they will request to delay the onset of insulin so that a change in lifestyle might be able to prevent starting insulin. And I know we've all heard that too from patients. And some people believe insulin causes complications or death from seeing family members that have uh, suffered from complications after starting insulin that had nothing to do with the insulin itself. And then, of course, there's fear of side effects including weight gain or low blood sugar or hypoglycemia. And as we all know, the cost of insulin has been a barrier too, going up lately. Additionally, there is a need for education on the side of the providers as to what resources are out there to help them out when they want to start someone on insulin. And I recommend referring to diabetes education or diabetes self-management and support programs. These programs are, you know, really helpful in supplementing education for providers. So they need to know how to order DSMES, what it is. They need to be educated on an ongoing basis on the new types of insulin, how to order insulin for their patients, how to address appropriate education and emotional support that's required as patients get started on insulin. Thanks so much, Karen. Uh, I certainly have also encountered the situation where I want to start insulin and the patient says, no, no, 
I'll make more changes now and let's try another three or six months. I appreciate you commenting on that. We're going to circle back a little bit later on and provide our tips on how to order. But before we do that, I'd love to hear from you, Sarah. As a pharmacist, how do you address the barriers of costs and potential side effects? Depending on the situation, this could be solved a few different ways. Cost is a common barrier that comes up in our clinical practice, um, but there's a few steps I take to try to determine how to best solve on patient-by-patient patient basis. The first step is that if a patient has prescription coverage, I try to find the most cost-effective formulary option. If the patient doesn't have prescription insurance or they can't afford their copays, they may be eligible for a medication assistance program from the manufacturer. The medication assistance programs usually require patients and providers to fill out an application, and this includes verification of the patient's income. If they're approved, however, they could receive the medication at no cost. Additionally, we can use generic cash price insulins that are available at certain pharmacies. However, these are often in the form of insulin vials and would require needles and syringes for use. The American Diabetes Association guidelines actually recommends the use of these lower cost insulins, such as NPH or regular insulin, as a cost-effective alternative, specifically in those patients with relaxed A1C goals, low rates of hypoglycemia, and insulin resistance. Another common and often challenging side effect that comes with the use of insulin is weight gain. Um, I often work with patients to mitigate weight gain by implementing dietary improvements and working exercise into their routine when we start insulin or before. Additionally, we can use some of our newer medications such as sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors and glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists with insulin and that can help offer the benefit of weight loss. This is often a specific discussion where education is provided on the benefits and risks of insulin and a personalized plan is developed with the patient to minimize these side effects. Thanks so much, Karen and Sarah. That's really helpful. And that weight gain especially can be such a concern for so many patients and also as providers. Hearing all this is helpful, but I would really love to hear how you all actually approach it. What are the words you truly use when you're with patients? Having two experts here, I would love to do some role playing if you're up for it. I was hoping, Sarah, if you could be the provider and Karen, if you could be the patient. And we're going to have a case. I have a case that is not a true case, but something we can all relate to. We've all seen. And we'll hear what you guys actually say when you encounter patients when you're starting insulin. Are you all set for this? You Sound good? Sure. Sounds good. Well, today I have TL coming in to start initiating insulin. She's this wonderful patient, 60-year-old local high school teacher. She's been having difficulty managing her diabetes, though. She's on a good regimen. She's on metformin and pagliflozin and once weekly, dulagulotide. Her last A1C was 9.2% despite all of these treatments. And at this point, we feel that it's time to start insulin. Our goal is to start some basal insulin today. All right, so TL is in the office. And Sarah, I'm going to hand over to you to start off. Good afternoon. My name is Sarah, and I'm a pharmacist here in your provider's outpatient clinic. Thank you for coming in to discuss a new medication with me for your diabetes. I know it can be difficult to take multiple medications, so I wanted to start off with reviewing your medications and wanted to ask how often would you say you miss a dose of your metformin, empagliflozin, or dulaglutide? I'm actually doing pretty well. I haven't missed any doses recently. That's excellent. Do you remember if you've ever taken anything else for your diabetes? Um, no, I haven't. Okay, thank you for that information. It's helpful to know what you've tried in the past so we can make good decisions about what we do moving forward. What do you currently know about insulin? 
I know insulin's an injection, and I've seen others draw a dose with a needle and inject it. I am so afraid of needles, and I only agreed to take dulaglutide because I could not see the needle, and I just had to push the button. My uncle had to use insulin for his diabetes, and as soon as he started, he went on dialysis and died a few years later. I do not want to poke myself with needles or be on dialysis. I'm very sorry for the loss of your uncle. It's unfortunate that insulin is often started when diabetes is not under control and often when it's been under poor control for a while. Several severe complications like kidney failure and the need for dialysis can result from this uncontrolled diabetes. And so while insulin is often used in these patients to help bring down their blood sugars, it's not actually the cause of the complication. Actually, insulin can help manage your diabetes, and it is our goal to reduce your risk for these complications. Well, thanks for explaining that. I'm, I see now that it probably wasn't the insulin that caused my uncle's problems, but rather his poor control of his diabetes. Yes, and you are also correct that there are insulins that do require you to draw up a dose using a needle and a syringe and then actually inject that needle into your skin. This is what we call insulin vials. However, there are also insulin pens, which are widely used today. These pens have the insulin in them already and do not require you to draw up a dose using the vial. Rather, you will dial the correct dose at the end of the pen and inject it using a much smaller needle. These are pen needles that attach to the end of the pen before each use. And I'll show you one here. Um, it's a very small needle that actually goes into the subcutaneous or fatty tissue under your skin. Wow, that is much smaller than I was thinking, but this still seems like a lot of work. Do, do you think I really need insulin? That is a great question. Based on your most recent A1C, which is the measure of your blood sugar over the last three months, at 9.2%, we still have over 2% of lowering to reach your A1C goal of less than 7%. So why do we want to reach less than 7%? The benefit of reducing your A1C to this goal is to reduce the risk of complications of diabetes. For example, the complications to your kidneys, heart, eyes, and nerves. So based on this, we need an additional medication to manage your blood sugars. You're currently on a good medication regimen that follows our national guideline recommendations, but unfortunately, we still aren't meeting your goal. So the next step toward your A1C control is to add insulin. Insulin is naturally produced in your body to lower your blood sugars. I usually think about it as a key that allows the sugar in your blood to enter into your cells where you need it for energy. So due to the progressive nature of diabetes, your body now is not producing enough insulin and is not responding to the insulin your body is making. So based on this, we need to provide extra insulin to lower your blood sugar. Insulin does work really well to lower your blood sugar and we would start you with a low dose of a once-daily insulin that lasts all day to keep your blood sugars within our goal. Once we start with a low dose, we'll monitor your blood sugars closely and slowly increase that every one to two weeks to reach your blood sugar goals. We'll do this so that we make sure we find the correct dose for you and we don't give too much or too little. Insulin can cause weight gain and can cause low blood sugar if too much is used or if you were to miss a meal or increase your activity. So one thing we will review is hypoglycemia or low blood sugar, signs, symptoms, and treatment today in the office before you leave. So by starting insulin, we will hopefully work to reach your A1C goals, and this will help reduce your risk of the complications of diabetes like we talked about previously. So based on this information, what questions do you have about starting insulin? 
Well, thanks for explaining that to me. But can you show me how to use insulin pens? I'm still a little nervous about being able to use it correctly. And I don't want to use too much and drop low. Yes, I would be happy to talk through that and to demonstrate the use of an insulin pen for you today. We would like to avoid low blood sugar as well, and we'll work with you to help you use insulin safely. So this is an insulin pen that I have here in the office. It doesn't have actual insulin in it, but is a demo so I can demonstrate how we use the device. As you can see, there is an end that you dial the dose. There's insulin stored here in a clear vial, and at the end is where you will attach the pen needle. Insulin pens are stored in your refrigerator when they're not in use. So for most insulin pens, you can store them outside of the refrigerator for up to 28 days, but we want to try to keep them in a temperature-stable area away from direct sunlight. Each insulin pen or type has specific recommendations for how long it is safe to use after its first dose, but in this case, your pen should be thrown away after 28 days after your first use. So even if you still have insulin left in this pen, you'll want to throw it away after 28 days and start a new pen. So before we inject the insulin, we want to prepare the injection site. You can inject insulin around your abdomen at least two inches away from your belly button, on the backs of your arms, or into your thighs. You want to find an area where you can pinch and inject into that fatty tissue under the skin. It's also important that you rotate injection sites for each dose and don't inject into the same spot every day to improve the absorption of the insulin. Once you select your application site, we'll have you clean the area with an alcohol swab and let that dry. Next, you're ready to attach the pen needle and prepare your dose. So the insulin pen needles, like I showed you before, actually come with two small caps and covers. So first, we're going to remove the metal tab that allows us to access the needle and to twist that insulin needle onto the end of the pen until it's secure. Then we can remove the larger outer cap of the needle and set that aside because we'll need it later. Then you'll see a tiny little inner cap on the actual needle itself. So when you remove that, be careful not to touch the exposed needle. Once your needle's on, we will do what's called priming your pen. And this is to make sure that the pen needle is attached and the pen is working appropriately. So what we usually do is dial the end of the pen to two units and then push the insulin out into the air. And if you watch at the very tip of the pen needle, you should be able to see a small bubble or a little bit of insulin come out as you push the dial back to zero. If you don't see anything or you feel like it didn't inject properly, this means maybe the pen needle isn't attached appropriately or there's an error and we should start over. But if you see that small bubble, it means it's ready to inject. So now we're actually going to dial to the dose that we want you to take. So you use the dial at the end of the pen to line up your number dose with the arrow. We will start with 10 units once a day, so you will dial your pen to the 10. Now the pen is ready to inject your dose. To inject, you're going to insert the needle into your skin at a 90 degree angle. Once it's in your skin, you're gonna slowly press down on the end of the pen until the dial returns to zero and all of the insulin is injected. I usually recommend to hold the pen in place for about five to 10 seconds after that dial reaches zero, just to make sure that all of the insulin is absorbed and into your skin. Then you'll pull the pen straight out and be able to reset your pen for next time. So this involves carefully scooping up that larger cap that we set aside for the pen needle. And don't use your other hand, just try to scoop it up one-handed to avoid any needle sticks. Use that outer cap to twist off the pen needle and put that pen needle into a sharps container or any durable plastic container. 
You'll then be able to put the cap on your insulin pen and you'll use a new needle when it's time for your dose tomorrow. This insulin, like I mentioned, is once a day and we'd like you to take it around the same time each day. So find a time that works well for you and your schedule. Using this demo pen, can you show me how you will inject your insulin? Thanks for that demo. It really does help. And uh, I think I can do it. It's not so bad. It seems similar to the way I take the dilaglutide. Yes, it is similar to your dilaglutide injection, except that this device will use pen needles instead of the auto injector. As we mentioned before, one side effect we want to minimize is that low blood sugar or hypoglycemia. So the signs and symptoms of that could be sweating, shaking, dizziness, lightheadedness, blurry vision, or an increased heart rate. You may also feel hungry or notice a change in your mood. So if any of these symptoms occur, we want you to check your blood sugar to see where it is. If the reading is less than 70, that is considered hypoglycemia and we need to treat it. Okay. Yeah, I I think I have had those symptoms before. So to correct it, what we want you to do is get 15 grams of quick sugar, such as four glucose tablets, a half a glass of juice or regular soda, or a full glass of milk. Once you've corrected with that, you'll wait about 15 minutes and then recheck your blood sugar. If it's still less than 70, we want you to repeat that correction and recheck until it is above 70. Then once you get to above 70, we want you to eat a snack with at least another 15 grams of carbs and added protein or a full meal so that we can keep your blood sugar there. If you experience an unexplained low blood sugar, a severe low blood sugar that requires assistance from someone else to help you treat it, or more than two low readings, please call our office and let us know so that we can address that. There are some things that put you at higher risk for having these low numbers, such as skipping meals or a significant increase in your activity can cause your blood sugar to go low. So it's important while you're taking these medications to eat regular meals and to bring snacks with you if you are going to be out and active or there's going to be any changes to your normal schedule. What do you think you have at home that you could use to correct a low blood sugar? Oh, I have have juice like orange juice and uh, I think I'll get those glucose tablets to carry with me too. Great. You should be able to find those at your local pharmacy. Um, It is also important that we monitor your blood sugars when we start insulin so we can help adjust the dose and make sure we're treating it appropriately. So we'd like you to check your blood sugars at least twice a day. Do you currently check your blood sugars? I mean, not regularly. Usually, I think my doctor told me to just check them in the morning. Okay. That's a great time to check. But if you can, when we start this medication, we'd like to add a second check if possible. So that first check should be your fasting blood sugar or before you eat or drink anything when you get up. And we're actually aiming for a goal of 80 to 130 for your fasting blood sugars. The other time to check would be two hours after a meal. And this goal would be less than 180. We can use these blood sugar checks to adjust your insulin dose over time and help reach these blood sugar goals. If we can reach these blood sugar goals, we should be in a good position to see that A1C less than seven in a three-month time frame. Okay. What questions do you have for me? I don't think I have any more questions. I, I'll try the insulin once daily and, and we'll see how, how my numbers respond. Thank you. And if you do have questions or you would like to come into the office to inject your insulin for the first time, once you pick it up from the pharmacy, we can meet again and have you give your first dose in the office. Thank you. 
Gosh, thanks so much, Sarah and Karen. I, I really appreciate hearing how you guys approach it. I really especially love, Sarah, how you first asked how she's doing with her medications now, and then really explored how much does she know about insulin now? That's the only way you're going to find out about that chronic kidney disease, that end-stage renal disease, and be able to address it head on. So thanks so much. That was really helpful. I want to move on to the next area, which is prescribing these supplies and medications as a provider. And I have to tell you a deep, dark, horrible secret that I don't want to share, but I'm going to share, which is I always mess this up. I always get calls from the pharmacy. I either ordered too few needles or too many needles or the wrong number of needles somehow or the wrong test strips or the incorrect lances. It is the top call I probably get from the pharmacies. And I'm sure the pharmacists are like, it's time for you to figure out how to do this, Chris. So help me out here. Karen, help me out with ordering these uh, supplies and uh, all the different needs for insulin. Well, it can be a lot of things to remember, that's for sure. But when you order insulin, it's important to order not only the actual insulin, but the needles for injection and the testing supplies. For insulin, there are vials and there are pens. If you're ordering vials, order insulin-specific syringes and needles. And if you're ordering pens, you're going to want to order insulin pen needles. Four to five millimeter pen needles have been found to be effective for most patients. For administration supplies, pen needles, syringes and needles and lancets and test strips, they come in boxes or multiples of 100. So if you're ordering pen needles, order one box of 100 for a 90-day supply. And finally, make sure patients have a glucometer and test strips, and lancets to check their blood glucose. When ordering testing supplies for the first time, ordering a glucometer and blood glucose test test strips generically versus a particular brand can help the patient obtain the most cost-effective option. In these orders, you can add a comment or note that the outpatient pharmacist can fill most cost-effective brand that's available. Test strips and lancets come in multiples of 100, So for a patient testing twice a day, order 200 strips or lancets for a 90-day supply. That is so helpful and explains why I keep on getting phone calls about ordering 90 needles because they come in packs of 100. So thank you. Sarah, how do I calculate how much insulin to give someone, though? That's a great question. It depends on the pharmacy if they will split boxes of insulin pens when filling orders. Generally, five insulin pens come in a box. But when ordering, the first thing to do is to review the concentration of the insulin. So whether it's 100 units per milliliter versus 200 units per milliliter or another concentrated dose. Most insulin pens are 3 milliliters, whereas most vials are 10 milliliters. So using the total daily dose your patient is taking, we can determine the number of units a patient would require for a 30 or 90 day supply. Using that number of units per pen or vial then helps us determine the nearest multiple to order. So for example, if a patient is using 30 units of insulin per day, that would be 900 units for a 30 day supply. So then if it's our 100 unit per ml concentration, the patient would require three three milliliter pens for that time frame. One thing to keep in mind as well is that it's important to send a new prescription to the pharmacy with updated dosing if you're titrating or tapering medication so that they can calculate an accurate day supply and the patient can get their medication in a timely manner. 
That's a great reminder. Thanks so much. And thanks for providing me guidance on how to limit those phone calls and decrease the frustration from our pharmacists. I'm sorry to say we're getting close to the end of our time today. I'm so grateful for all of the education you've provided. It was wonderful to hear about the barriers that our patients encounter, thinking about, gosh, have they failed because now they're having to go insulin, or the fact that they are associating insulin with some of the worst outcomes with diabetes and associating with insulin as opposed to their diabetes, and also how to address their cost limitations and how to perhaps look at insulins that are a little bit easier to purchase for our patients. So thanks so much for reviewing all this, and also thanks for letting us Listen in as you provide that education. That was so helpful. There's a lot more information on this on our cardio site, cardio.org. Thanks so much, Karen and Sarah, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And a special thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to Cardio Radio. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.